Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question asks if I can describe the case of the Menendez brothers and kind of the ethical considerations that come around the mental health treatment and confidentiality circumstances in that case. So it's a really interesting case because, of course, it involves parasite, which is a rare type of homicide where children kill their parents. But it's also interesting because it kind of weaves in the mental health components with ethics and confidentiality. So I'll discuss this case. I'm going to describe some of the information from this case, actually quite a bit of it, and I have references in the description for this video that I used to make this video. So just as a disclaimer before we get into the details with this case, I am not diagnosing the Menendez brothers. I've never met them. I have met Jerry Ozeal, and I'll talk about that, but I'm not diagnosing him either or any of the people involved in this whole case. So with the Menendez brothers, we see there were two brothers. This was back in 1989. Lyle, who was 21, Lyle Menendez, and Eric Menendez, who was 18. They lived in the mansion with their parents, Jose and Mary Louise. Mary Louise was referred to as Kitty, though, so I'm just going to call her Kitty. So you have Lyle, Eric, Jose, and Kitty in the same house in Beverly Hills. Now, we have some interesting information about the family and kind of the history. And again, this is just based on reports that I was able to find in the public record. And that would include what I was able to find in the library. We see that Jose, the father here, had multiple affairs going on during this time. He had a mistress in New York, a mistress in Los Angeles, and evidently he was engaged with a few prostitutes as well. Now, Kitty had some different problems during this time as well. It's alleged that she had difficulties with alcohol, and one time she was admitted to the hospital after overdosing on Valium. We see that Lyle and Eric also appeared to have some difficulties. They seemed to have difficulties with impulsivity. They had committed burglaries, and in one burglary, over $100,000 worth of property was missing. They were arrested, convicted, and placed on probation. Jose, the father, apparently took away Lyle's credit cards, and allegedly he stole those back. Lyle stole those back. Lyle also created a screenplay that detailed a character who committed a parasite in order to get insurance money. We also see reports that Eric and Lyle Menendez from early in childhood may have demonstrated some of the symptoms that we see with the disorder called conduct disorder. Again, I don't know if this was an official diagnosis that anybody gave to them. This is just what we see in the reports, that they allegedly had some symptoms that lined up with conduct disorder. Now, we also see some strife in the family, actually quite a bit. 
We see that Kitty at one point was changing the will, and Lyle knew this, so kind of a motivation for some sort of criminal act. We also see that Lyle alleged that he was abused sexually during his childhood, and Eric made the same allegations except for he indicated the abuse took place right up into the murder. And we see in new evidence, evidence that wasn't considered in this original case, that there may be a letter that was written eight months before that by Eric that indicates that he was abused. So there may be some, again, new evidence that wasn't available back then. In terms of evidence that was available back then, Lyle had apparently told a couple of roommates about his abuse. So there's really a lot to this case. That's just a snapshot of some of the struggles that were occurring within the family as we come up to summer of 1989. So now taking a look at the actual crime, as I mentioned before, this was a double parasite. Lyle and Eric killed their parents. And here's what we know, again, from available documents. August 18th, 1989, the brothers bought two shotguns from a sporting goods store in San Diego. Then, two days later, this was a Sunday night, August 20th, 1989, in the mansion in Beverly Hills, we see that the crime took place in the family room. Jose was seated on a couch in that room, asleep, and Kitty was laying down with her head on his lap. One of the brothers aimed the 12-gauge shotgun at Jose, fired the shotgun, and struck him in the left elbow and the right arm. The other brother walked up behind Jose and shot him in the back of the head. Because of the shooting, Kitty woke up and she tried to flee, but she was injured by shots fired by the brothers, but she was not killed at that time. The brothers went out to their car because they ran out of ammunition before they could kill their mother. They reloaded the shotguns with birdshot, came back in, and shot her in the head several times. After Lyle and Eric killed their parents, they shot both Jose and Kitty, each in the knee. So after this, they collected the shell casings and they left the home, expecting that because of all the shots occurring, all the noise from the shotguns, that the police would be at the mansion when they arrived back. But when they came back home, nothing was changed. No one was there. So they decided to call the police and make an effort to cover up their crimes. And they came up with this excuse that they were out at the movies and came back and found their parents murdered. So it's interesting that many of the neighbors did hear the shotguns, but nobody reported it. Again, it was actually the brothers that decided to call the police. According to statements they've made, they expected at that time that they would go to prison. And that's why they made up the lie that they came home and discovered that their parents had been murdered. Now, it's interesting here because the shotguns were actually in their cars, and they had gunshot residue on their hands, but the police never looked in their cars, and they were never tested for gunshot residue. Now, all these circumstances are actually fairly interesting because, again, the brothers made it seem like they came up with the idea to cover up the crime afterward. But with the shooting both Jose and Kitty in the knee, it kind of set up their story, which was that the mafia killed their parents. And that's the story they stuck with after the murders. Eric allegedly also confessed to a friend, but he went to the police and they kind of set him up to go visit Eric again and try to get that conversation going. But he didn't confess again. Eric didn't confess a second time to that friend. He may not have confessed the first time. So either way, after all this happened, the brothers went on a spending spree, which of course was used at the trial against them. And it's alleged they spent about $700,000. 
So this seems pretty suspicious, and it's reasonable to appreciate this would have been included as part of the prosecution's case. Now, from this point on, of course, the police did suspect Lyle and Eric. The mafia story was disposed of relatively quickly, but they didn't have enough evidence to charge them. The investigation was kind of stalled. And during the same time, Eric was seeing a clinical psychologist by the name of Leon Jerome Ozeal, Jerry Ozeal. So at this point, kind of in the interest of full disclosure, I indicated before that I had met Jerry Ozeal on one prior occasion, well, probably a few times, but I don't remember it. That's because I met him in 1972, and I was less than one year old at that time. So he earned his degree in clinical psychology from Arizona State University, PhD in clinical psychology, and during that time, both of my parents, who also have PhDs in clinical psychology, were in that same graduate program at Arizona State University, and they were friends with Jerry Ozeal and his wife, Laurel. So I was born when my parents were in graduate school, and they hung out with Jerry and Laurel Ozeal. So technically, I met Jerry Ozeal again many times, but I don't remember any of it, and I think that's understandable given my age, and that has really... I mean, as far as I know, created no bias either for or against him as I review this case. So either way, Eric was being treated by Jerry Ozeal, and on Halloween 1989, October 31st, Eric confessed to him, to Jerry Ozeal, that him and his brother had murdered their parents. And when Lyle found this out, he threatened Jerry Ozeal's life. So he essentially told him, don't tell anybody, or he would kill him. Now, this brings about one of the most interesting ethical questions that could come out of this case, which is what responsibility did Jerry Ozeal have to keep this confidential? So it's one thing that Eric told him that he committed the murders. That would clearly still be confidential. But what about what happens after Lyle threatens him? Well, a lot, of course, came of all this, and this really became central to the prosecution's case. So I'll tell you what happened and then I'll tell you what I think should have happened based on the ethics. So here's what happened next in this case. So Jerry Ozeal heard this threat, and he started tape recording the sessions with the brothers. Now, I mentioned before Jerry Ozeal was married to Laura Ozeal, and he also had a mistress, and her name was Judalyn Smith. So he asked this mistress, Judalyn Smith, to hang out outside the office and listen in to sessions so she could hear the brothers talking about the murders. So this is what he actually did. Now after Judalyn Smith and Jerry Ozeal broke up when they were no longer lovers, Judalyn Smith went to the police and told her all this and they got a search warrant and they got a hold of those tapes and also Jerry Ozeal's notes. Now as you may imagine this went to court several times and we saw different rulings but in the end, the California Supreme Court allowed two of the tape sessions to be admitted, arguing that Dr. Ozeal was acting in self-preservation and that no therapy took place in the sessions where the, these two recordings were made. Therefore, the brothers were not entitled to confidentiality. So what they essentially said was that all confidentiality disintegrated when Ozeal's life was threatened. So my point here would be, did Eric and Lyle believe those sessions were not therapeutic? So I told you what happened, and I told you I would then reveal kind of what I think should have happened. Well, this is interesting because there is this duty to warn that's in place in the world of mental health treatment. 
So if you have a client that comes to you as a mental health professional and they say they're going to hurt somebody else, you have a duty to warn. You have to make an effort to warn the person who may be harmed and notify the police. But you don't provide any more information in this situation than is necessary to prevent harm. This is based on a case that also occurred in California, the Tarasoff case. And now all the states have laws because of that Tarasoff case. This is, again, the duty to warn. So I look at this situation as very similar to duty to warn, meaning, yes, Jerry Ozeal could have contacted the police when his life was threatened, but he was not allowed to offer any more information than what was necessary to protect his life. So certainly, recording the sessions and having his mistress listen in on the sessions, both of those behavior, in my opinion, were not consistent with ethics, right? Those appear to be pretty clear breaches of ethics. So I think that he had a clear path at the time he was threatened. I think you have to, at some level, give him the benefit of the doubt a little bit because having your life threatened is a pretty frightening experience. But still, his actions seemed very inconsistent with the norms of his profession. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con. So this becomes a problem later on, I'll talk about this. So in 1997, well after this case was already over and completely resolved, we see that Jerry Ozeal was accused by a state panel of breaking the rules of confidentiality, and he was also accused of having sex with former clients. Now, he surrendered his license to the Department of Consumer Affairs Board of Psychology, but admitted no wrongdoing. He actually denied any wrongdoing in that case. So he didn't defend the license. He just surrendered it. So just to be clear there, there was never a proceeding where we really got to see what the evidence was. He was accused, and the license was surrendered, and that's the end of it. So now moving back a few years to the trial. So the Menendez brothers were arrested in 1990. They were tried in 1993, and the result we saw in 1994. And here the defense was really about fear, about a fight that happened days before the murder, where Eric talked about his abuse and... Allegedly, Jose was worried 
that Eric would tell people. So it wasn't about the abuse itself changing the brothers and making them into people that were afraid of their parents. It was about, rather, this threat to their lives that was more immediate, that occurred because, again, of a fight a few days before. Now, in 93 and 94, there were actually two separate trials. They were tried individually by separate juries. And the alleged abuse was admitted. The jury did hear about the abuse. We see in early 1994 that both juries came back without a decision. They were hung juries. So that trial was over, and there was no verdict. In 1995, they were tried by one jury, and none of the family history was admissible in that trial. So both were tried together, again, by one jury that did not hear about any of the allegations of abuse. In 1996, that jury returned a guilty verdict, and there were some aggravating circumstances they added to the conviction of murder, which was lying in wait and multiple murders. The brothers both received two consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. Now, what's interesting about this second trial is the jurors were interviewed after the verdict was already rendered, and they were told about the family history, and several said they would have changed their mind if they knew about the history of abuse during the actual trial. We also see kind of an interesting relationship here with this conviction of murder and another possibility, which was manslaughter. If they had been convicted of manslaughter, they would have likely been sentenced to about 22 years. But of course, they were convicted of murder and sentenced to life without parole, as I mentioned. So this becomes interesting because there's now somewhat of a debate about whether they should have been convicted of first-degree murder. And I'll talk about this in a moment. So before I get to that, I want to talk about the moral accountability, and then I'll move on to the legal accountability. It is important to note that I'm not a lawyer, so I'm just really basing these opinions on what I understand from reading the literature, in terms of the legal part anyway. So for the moral accountability part, what we see here, there's a few things going on. In terms of finding the truth, the alleged abusers, of course, are dead because Lyle and Eric killed them, and they're not able to refute the allegations of abuse, and that's kind of disturbing, right? Like, when we look for the truth, we want to hear everyone's opinion, and of course, when somebody commits a parasite like this, a double parasite, and then accuses their parents of abuse, you're never going to hear the other side of the story there. So in terms of what could have been going on with mental health or mental state, and again, this is just speculation, not diagnosing. We see here that they bought the shotguns, as I mentioned, two days before the murder. These murders appeared to be carefully planned, not the result of some sort of uncontrollable impulse or fear-based response in the moment. Both were active in the parasite, so they both fired the weapons. And either way, of course, this would have been a conspiracy. We see that when individuals are sexually abused as children, we know from the research literature that they tend to be more symptomatic than non-abused children. We see symptoms like being fearful, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, behavioral problems, poor self-esteem, and aggression. And of course, when the perpetrator is close to the victim, as was alleged in this case, the symptoms are often more serious because it's a kind of a betrayal at a deeper level than if it were a stranger. Of course, both are damaging. Now, something else that's used when kind of considering the moral accountability and also the legal accountability is neither Lyle or Eric disclosed the fact they were abused to Jerry Ozeal. So for many people, this is kind of suspicious. 
When we look at how sexual abuse really works, this part really doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me if they would have concealed this. So if these allegations of abuse were true, it doesn't surprise me they would have hid that from Dr. Ozeal. So in terms of moral accountability, really, again, we just kind of weigh these factors. There isn't a determination like guilty or not guilty. But it is an interesting case. And a lot of people believe that if this case were looked at today, the result would have been different than what we saw back in 1995. And I believe this is true. Back then, we really didn't have a good understanding of how abuse affects children and how it could lead to some of the things that we saw in this case. So that isn't in any effort to defend them, just to point out that we have to look at all the evidence when we try to weigh accountability. So what about the legal point of view? And again, this is really sort of the moral point of view too, because the law and morals kind of go together. Well, there are really two schools of thought here that I've been able to observe in this case. One is that manslaughter would have been a more reasonable charge based on the fact that they were abused. And some people believe there wasn't as much premeditation as I think the evidence supports. I think there was premeditation, but some people believe there wasn't. And they believe that, again, manslaughter and 22 years in prison would have been a just outcome in this case. Others believe that justice was served, right? These two young men bought shotguns, they loaded them, they pointed at their parents, they fired them multiple times, and again went back and reloaded to make sure that they could kill their mother. Highly disturbing. So if they spend life in prison, that seems like justice. And a lot of the people who have this opinion, I've noticed, aren't really interested in the abuse one way or the other. So they might have been abused, or they might not have been, but either way, you're talking about double parasite and they have to go to prison for life. So those are the two schools of thought I've seen emerge kind of in this case. Now there are other opinions, but I'm looking at the two kind of major opinions here. So what do I think? Well, I think that what I believe is probably relatively unimportant in one sense, because it's not gonna change anything, but it may be somewhat important that everyone kind of think about this case, because it has a lot to say about ethics and justice. Either way, I think that it's unlikely they're going to get any type of different result, right? They've exhausted their appeals. There's some new evidence. I mentioned that, a letter that supposedly supports the idea that Eric was abused, and this occurred eight months before, this letter was written eight months before the murders. But in terms of what's actually going to happen, probably nothing. That's unlikely. But again, to weigh ethics and justice and have an interesting debate, what's my opinion on this case? Well, my first thought here is I wish that there was a trial for these brothers that included the family history and did not include the tapes. I think the family history is relevant because, again, we know more about the effects of sexual abuse. So I wish that could have been presented to a jury. And I think the tape shouldn't have been in because clearly that was privileged communication. When somebody goes to a therapist, they assume that the information they tell the therapist is confidential. The exceptions are pretty clear, and even when the exceptions take place, only the information that has to be released is supposed to be released. So we can't go back in time and give them what I think would be a fair trial, but I think that makes more sense, kind of based on our understanding of mental health therapy and privilege and confidentiality. I don't think those matters were really considered correctly. I don't think they were kind of reasoned through at the time, but either way, can't go back in time and change that, so what about the kind of moral slash legal accountability in this case? 
Well, I can understand the manslaughter uh, thoughts here, right? The idea that they endured horrible abuse over a long period of time. Again, we know the effect of that abuse. If there was evidence to support that, I can understand why somebody would say, look, they committed murder, and that's very serious, but manslaughter is a serious charge. It's a felony. They would have went to prison for, again, about 22 years. That's a serious penalty. I can appreciate that argument. At the same time, I can also appreciate the argument that justice was served. And I think the reason I'm stuck between these two kind of ways of thinking about this case is really because of how they treated the mother. So under their claim, they were horribly abused by the father, and apparently they did make some claims against the mother in trial. But really, I mean, looking at their case, it was about the father abusing them. Now, that doesn't justify murder, but again, that's what they were looking at in this case. They were saying they were horribly abused, so they kind of committed the crime in a way out of self-defense. But what danger did the mother pose? Right? They shot the mother, and she wasn't killed, and they went and reloaded, and then shot her again. And that's particularly heinous. Again, even looking at their defense strategy, which was based on the father, the mother just shouldn't have been involved at all, at any level of this. No one should have been involved, of course, because they shouldn't have committed murder. But even looking at through their frame of reference, if in fact the abuse occurred, I don't see how the mother was involved. And even if somebody were to say, look, we'll convict them of manslaughter for Jose Menendez, it was still first-degree murder for the mother. Also, their story doesn't quite line up for me. They said they expected to be arrested, and they were surprised when the police weren't there, and they weren't arrested, like the alibi was an afterthought. But why shoot both the parents in the knee? Why kind of set that up for, like, the mafia killed them defense? Why collect the shell casings? It seems pretty clear that not only was the crime premeditated, but the cover-up was premeditated as well. It looks like they wanted people to believe that the cover-up was not premeditated. And I just don't buy that based on the evidence that's available. So weighing everything, we just don't know enough about the abuse. We don't know for sure that it occurred. And I think that's why I'm really on the fence. If I knew more about the abuse, if I was sure that occurred, I think I may lean more over to manslaughter. But where I am now, I think justice was served, especially with the matricide, especially killing the mother. It just doesn't make sense based on their story. So this is one of those, I think, rare instances where I'm stuck between kind of the two popular ways of thought and don't really lean one way or the other. So I'd really be curious, and I'm always curious if you have any thoughts on this subject. If you looked at this case as I described it, maybe other information about the case, how do you look at the moral accountability and the legal accountability in this case? Would manslaughter have been justice? Has justice been served with life in prison and no possibility of parole? This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. 
When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.